Welcome to Collective Constructs, the podcast. I'm Marcella Ernest. In this episode, we sit down with Arif Khan. Arif Khan has nearly 20 years of experience in contemporary visual arts organizations and art museums. He has expertise in the fields of museum administration, fundraising, collections management, exhibition development, museum education, and strategic planning with contemporary artists. Araf is currently the director of the University of New Mexico Art Museum in Albuquerque, New Mexico, a position he has held since 2016. Like all of our guests in this series, we talked to Araf about his perspective of the Hindsight Insight 2.0 exhibition that Collective Constructs has been a collaborator with. We learn a lot more about careers as a museum professional and the responsibilities of a museum director. We also gain more insight on academic museums in particular, with a little hindsight about the history of the UNM Art Museum. Hi, Arif. Thanks for meeting with us. Um, I guess we just wanted to start by asking what is the role of a museum director and specifically in your case, what you had a relationship as a student with this museum, we're assuming, and kind of curious how your relationship um, shifted as a student to working within the museum as the director. Sure. Um, well, thanks for inviting me to have this conversation today. Um, I've been a director for uh, at the UNM Art Museum. It'll be almost seven years. It'll be seven years in August is when I officially started. I think really... It's always wise to think of um, museums come in a lot of different shapes and sizes, and I think the role of a director can change. I'm not going to say I do the same thing as like the director of the Met, for example. Um, but um, at least here at the university, this is also my first time being a director. I came up through curatorial and arts administration ranks in my previous jobs. As you all know, you, we're a small staff, um, so... Everyone, I think, kind of chips in where they can, but primarily my main responsibilities are managing the budget for the museum and designating funding for various exhibitions, programs that we do, um, helping the staff come up with priorities for what we want to do um, as an institution. And that comes in all shapes and sizes, right? The art that comes in or the collection, to the types of shows we do, types of programs we do, and then the, uh, designating the resources that go to them. Being at a university, that adds another layer compared to, say, like you know, a municipal museum or a private museum. There are various committee responsibilities that I have as well with the main campus. So university is very hierarchical, so I report to the dean <laughs> here, but we are the university art museum, not just the College of Fine Arts Art Museum. Um, and I think that gives me a unique role on campus in a way where the provost may reach out for something, or the president, or the dean of the law school, when they're like, hey, we have a sculpture and there's renovations, what do we do with it? So I think a university museum brings up unique responsibilities mm -hmm. for a director that other museums don't have. Going back to my kind of historical relationship with the museum, I grew up in Albuquerque, and actually my first exposure was my high school photography uh, instructor brought us here. So go to the see exhibits, go to the study room. So I definitely remember having kind of a light bulb moment of 
oh my god, that's Ansel Adams' photograph, and it's right there. Or um, I think it was one of my earliest museum experiences was with this university museum. And then I did my master's at UNM. I won't say the year because I'll date myself, but it was it was a while ago. <laughs> and um, I was in American studies, but also took a lot of art history. Focus was on visual culture and history of photography. Um, actually, the person who had Mary's position at that time, Kathleen Howe, was on my committee, as well as the photo historian at that time was Jeffrey Batchin. If you told my younger self I would have this job, I think you were crazy, you know. There is some kind of personal, it's an honor for me in a lot of different ways to have this role. And I remember the conversation with the dean who hired me at the time was really looking for the director to provide a kind of long-term vision what is it what does the museum mean moving forward in the 21st century and not always kind of looking to the golden age <laughs> or just kind of what's the exhibition schedule and we just trying to get by it was the hope was to try to stabilize <laughs> the institution um for the long run so that's something i keep in mind as well as the day-to-day -day aspects is where are we also in you know five years um what are the larger macro goals that we're trying to do. The Constructs has been very fortunate to work with, you know, the Art Museum for this past exhibition. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit more about the reception um, that you've seen. From my perspective, sure. Um, uh, very proud of uh, the exhibition that Mary and all of our collaborators have put together with this. This kind of general idea was something we were teasing out before the pandemic, and then we did apply for Terra Foundation grant to help us provide the resources, but looking back on it, that application process I think really helped Mary and I kind of put down on paper what what were our priorities with, with the exhibition. Um, so reception-wise, from my perspective, what I've been hearing, uh, the number one thing, one of the number one things, multiple number ones, but uh, <laughs> would be um, the Attendance, right? That's a great metric for museums. What we do here uh, is also prioritize, we want to, we track our student attendance versus general admission. So our numbers with uh, UNM student visitors specifically have been very high. That's them as individuals, also as part of a class, right? So there's a lot of different ways that students can come here. And so we do our best as much as we can to try to track those different types. So if a student on their own volition is coming, we want to know that. Also, if they're coming as part of a class, we want to know that too. But um, don't have the most updated numbers on me, but uh, since we reopened the galleries at the beginning of March till I think mid-April, we were over 2,000 people. So in a relatively short amount of time, that's the overall number of folks that have been coming um, into the museum. What I've also heard from, say, administration, deans, other faculty, uh, especially folks who have maybe been at UNM for quite a while, is a welcome that the museum is feeling like it's reaching out to the campus, to the art department, um, that maybe it hadn't always done in its, in its previous history. It was more kind of cloistered and museum does its thing and people come and they learn what the museum wants it to, right? Rather than devising its plans with with others. So seeing that as a welcome change. Another type of reception that I get 
I have the advantage of being privy to is I'm on the uh, national board for the Association of Academic Museums and Galleries, which is university museums all over the country. And through that network, get to share what we do here in Albuquerque with my colleagues around the country and just getting kudos of like, wow, that's so great that you have that many students coming. Um, we have thought of similar things. How did you do that? How was the workflow structured? How was it received by museum staff, etc.? All those, all those types of things. I think university museums in general have a challenge right now of, and I think it's always been that case, but really there's a lot of talk about what are university museums' roles on their respective campuses. And we think about that a lot here. We're a university museum, we're not just an art museum. So depending on where you are, I think sometimes university museums lean more just trying to be like what a standalone museum would do, and then the university part comes later. Others are very tied into their respective institutions and maybe don't have as much of a relationship with their com uh, general communities in whatever city or town they're in. But, you know, kind of in brief, when you have the history of art on your computer or your phone, what is the role of a museum, right, on campus? Most university museums are post-World War II phenomenons and were kind of started in the same way we were here in Albuquerque, providing faculty, students, university community with in-person experiences with original works of art. Um, so if you can imagine back in 40s, 50s, 60s, if you didn't have a slide of something, how else are you going to be able to see it? Um, that was kind of these original impetus to, to founding these museums. You could be really go macro. Why do universities even have museums, right, if you think about it? So um, I think it's a challenge now for institutions to really think of their kind of larger place within um, their respective universities. Um, so that's kind of the intellectual part of it. There's also the physical resource side of it where, and I hear this from my colleagues around the country too, well, when this museum was started, it didn't have a collection. The people who started it had the fun part and got to build it. How do you make those collections relevant to audiences today while still also trying to expand? So they were founders of various institutions around the country did not have a past they really had to contend with. Now we're dealing with what is the institutional history <laughs> for good and bad, the collections that were amassed during those times, how are they relevant now, what is, is the goal to just keep getting more stuff, quote unquote, <laughs> um, and being more maybe intentional with acquisitions, building the collection. Um, we haven't gotten around to this part, but deaccessioning, I'm sure you guys have heard, is a big topic of conversation in institutions. Um, you know, there's there's a lot, so a lot of that with the collection, right? We, museums trumpet their collections all the time. Our facility is bursting at the seams with our vaults, so that's just a very physical, we would love to just be able to say, yeah, we'll take everything, but there are limitations with that. Also, it would ever get used. I'm a big believer in you get things for your collection, not just to say you have X amount of numbers or important artists, but that they serve a purpose for what the institution wants to do. 
Um, whether that's in our study room, right? It doesn't have to just be for exhibition purposes. It can be for um, that type of uh, in-person experience, possible research. University museums generally have an obligation to, to represent their institutional history. How much of that are we supposed to do? So um, alumni, students who've gone through here, faculty, all those things kind of come our way, and it's not just, I think a lot of people think you're just evaluating a work of art on its quality, the artist's reputation, but there are a lot of other considerations that, that come in. So I think what I really like about this uh, Hindsight Insight project we're doing is it really um, allowed us to really look at our collection and the history of the institution, but invite others to bring their perspectives in on that history as well. Moving forward, what kind of work is the museum interested in acquiring? That's a very good question. I'm sure Mary had her thoughts um, sharing sharing with you all. Um, uh, not surprisingly, uh, us, the UNM Art Museum, like other institutions around the country, were maybe not prioritizing collecting artworks by uh artists of color, underrepresented groups. I think there's also mediums. I think that's maybe a unique thing with our university museum, that it was an early champion of photography when a lot of institutions, which is, I think now, kind of hard to believe that photography was not looked at as something worthy of museums to collect. But that is one thing that the UNM Art Museum was, was an early adopter of, looking at photography as a medium that's worth um, collecting at the level of like painting or <laughs> all the classic kind of mediums. And going back to what I was kind of saying earlier with our very large collection, so we use the number of over 30,000 objects, right? If you're getting more, who is it for, why? But I think we do want to diversify the collection and have more representative examples of artists from backgrounds that, uh, whether in New Mexico or elsewhere, that we don't have uh, represented in our collections. I think an advantage, I like, it helps us, I think, in a way, is that we try to think of university collections are meant to support the curriculum that's being taught. So that does give us, it's not just kind of whatever we want as staff at the museum to do, but there are guide guideposts of what is happening on campus. How can we support um, and have objects that can support that that teaching and interest by the students and faculty. But also thinking too, and that do we have to collect everything? Are there ways to have relationships with other institutions or kind of thinking existentially about what, what does quote unquote owning the object <laughs> or the piece, does that give it more valence than say borrowing it or doing an exhibition around a topic? It's a lot of things like that. So but kind of giving specifics around that, but I think we we want to be targeted in what we have. Speaking to kind of the institutional history that I think we're always balancing is for a lot of folks, they know us because of our photography and print collecting. So that's always in the back of our minds too, is being responsive to that history of collecting. I think that's a challenge too, is when do you, when do institutions maybe keep if they're going all in on something and that's been going on for decades when is it time to make a pivot to something new um, or staying or keep going all in on 
kind of what people know you for, <laughs> I think is um, is interesting. I say, Barry and I have talked about this a lot. One of the reasons Mary was attracted here as a photo scholar was that great history. And I think students are still attracted to coming to campus because of that history. Uh, printmaking as well with Tamarind Institute. And um, I mean, that's prints are also a classic university museum collecting point, right? It's They're more affordable. You can have a variety of works. Artists worked in multiples, right? So you can see those things. But um, yeah, so it's kind of bouncing around as much as we can. As much as I wish we could say, we don't have, uh, you know, unlimited funds to purchase things. So those are the kind of the common connectors. Donors come to us with what they have. <laughs> so maybe there's something that's not really on our radar, but if something falls in our lap, that's amazing. We'll be like, oh my God, yeah, we had uh, a couple years ago, donor out of the blue, had no relationship to us, came and recently moved to Albuquerque and had a Robert Mablethorpe photograph that... Um, at first, I was like, is this, is this a real person? Is this a scam? What's going on here? Um, but you get to know them, and she's like, I moved here from Houston, the Houston Museum of Fine Arts. They have plenty of things. <laughs> this would just sit in a vault. I figured maybe University Museum, this piece could have more of an impact or get used more. So we move on that way. And, and then it becomes on us to like, well, now that we have this, how can we integrate it into our other plans? So. I try to, you want to have some general policies or general ways of doing things, but I don't want, in my personal opinion, getting so restrictive that it takes away the chance to be, to respond to things that come out of the blue, whether that's works of art or ideas um, and projects to do. So I think museums, like a lot of institutions, tend to over-policy and like, let's make this 10-year strategic plan and we're sticking to it and not being responsive to things that happen around. So I think there's this balancing act of having general ways of doing things, but then being open to new things coming your way. Um, I think as university museums, we have a little more flexibility in that. Um, again, because, you know, faculty present something, students present something, and we want to jump on it. And that can lead us down a, a productive road. So. One of the things I'm interested um, in, you started talking a little bit about, you know, university muse museums, mm -hmm. and I was wondering if you can expand on what, you know, some of the unique responsibilities are for, you know, this specific museum. So I've really thought about that a lot since becoming director, um, as I was kind of touching on there. Um, I think UNM Art Museum is a unique position being a university museum in a state that has an abundance of other museums. So from a communications marketing level, what's our niche in this larger landscape here in, in New Mexico? Um, that's something I consciously thought of, like that's what makes us different. You know, there's New Mexico State and us. Those are kind of the, we are the university art museums. Um, so presenting ourselves externally that's a conscious decision not just because i do believe in it but it's also a way to, for us to help cut through the noise right we're not doing what other people are doing a lot of other museums struggle to get students college high school k-12 through etc into their doors our, our audience is here um i also know uh here on campus i think this is all campuses what 
the administration cares about is 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 the museum being responsive to the university community um, and so that's why I really focus on those student attendance numbers and I was saying I can go then and what I'm asking we could always use more resources so showing that there is demand from the university community for what we do and if we if you're if they're happy with what we're doing more resources can help us grow and we're not just uh, we don't charge admission, so it's free museum. So we don't have those pressures of like, we need to earn 20% of our annual budget through admission sales. So there is that turnstile effect, as we call it in the museum field, where I think you can tell there's those blockbuster shows, right? That you see in wherever you live that uh, you can tell are designed to bring as many people as possible through the doors. Um, I, I what I like about university museums is we can't we can do that if we want. We had a Frida Kahlo exhibition that broke all of our attendance records and brought so many new people onto campus and into the museum. But we can also get away with things where, you know, this maybe has a very niche appeal, can be a little more academic, more scholarly, bring up larger ideas that maybe um, would be a harder sell for audiences of museums that are trying to appeal to as many people as possible. So I think that's... Um, some of the positive things that we can do here. And again, it separates us from those other museums that we can show, not just show that type of work, but it's really the contextualization of artwork, I think, and how you curate, um, what you put on your website. I know it frustrates the staff and curators sometimes, but you know, the general rule of thumb is if you're writing a wall label text panel, it's supposed to be at like a seventh grade level. Try to keep that there jargon limited, but if it if it warrants it, <laughs> we can go and or be a little more philosophical around conversations that are happening. Um, and I like to think that's what we're doing with this exhibition, hindsight insight with your all's help. I'll just share that we had that um, also with the um, inclusion of some of some text and the students and. We're having what was it night um, text wall text nightmares at one point, <laughs> you know one inch two inch the the aesthetics of them and the size of them but also the um, the content of them you know so that was something that we thought through as a group collectively of you know we had to revisit the the questions again when they had sent them to me I was like these are great but how do we how can we say the same thing and ask them a little differently to where the way we talk in class might come across as pretentious in a public space. And that's not to say that the general community or our communities can't, are not intellectual as we are. Um, you know, it's just about accessibility, but not just about accessibility, I mean, so. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the, we talk a lot, it's the tone of the writing, I think, as well. So it's not necessarily maybe, say, you know, as they say, you know, if you use this word on Scrabble, you get the most points ever. <laughs> but are you talking down to your audience? Are you, it's how you're, the tone of the language. Is it accessible, but in a, like, an open way, maybe, rather than just the simple, like, oh, is the font size large enough for legibility? Um the grammar part, we don't want people to feel like we're being pretentious. I think as a university, I think people want to, um, a discussion of more complex ideas. It's the how. 
It's not saying we know best and this is what you should know, but it's a way of hopefully inviting the reader, the audience into these conversations that they feel like they can contribute rather than just absorb and then being told what to do or what to think, what to look at, how to look at it. Um, that's a challenge, <laughs> right? Um, but I think that's something we, we have tried to do with all of our exhibitions and programs is um, not talking down to your audience, basically. It's probably the easiest way to, to put it. So. And then, you know, we talk about, too, uh, a lot of our students, especially our undergrads, they're from, most of them from New, Mex New Mexico, maybe from rural communities. We may be their first museum experience. I want that to be a positive one. Museums can be intimidating places for certain people if they're not used to going. So we try to have a welcoming environment. You don't have to dress up. You don't have to behave in a certain way. Um, try to really have put out there that you can come and look at the art, but if you just need a quiet place to sit, this is an open museum. They can be social spaces. You don't have to come here just to do what things we think you should do, <laughs> but you can make it um, your own. So I think those are some general things about being open and accessible is not being um, off-putting or feeling like, oh, I have to be an art student to come here or some of that. Um, it's another thing we try to think about. That's something that inspired us too is the idea of creating creating space and activating spaces. So. I think that is something that the museum is doing, and I really enjoyed the opportunity to not only learn more about the UNM Art Museum specifically, but about just functionings of museums more broadly in yeah. a sort of updated context. And I say updated because I did museum studies at the Institute of American Indian Arts when I was younger. A couple years ago. A couple yeah. years ago. <laughs> and so just it's interesting for me to revisit the conversations and just kind of have a like a history and also a contemporary a future aspect of how, how things operate, particularly the the difference between a uh, I don't know if you would call them public or private museum and a and a university museum. Is that are they segmented in these? A little bit. A lot of that's on administrative structures. Okay. So, I mean, New Mexico is unique, I think, in in the United States being majority of museums are like state or city run. Um, the private ones, I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, I'm, I know I'm missing some, but like in the visual arts, at least, it's like the O'Keeffe Museum, Site Santa Fe, if you want to call them a museum. I could argue maybe that could be a whole other podcast of are you a museum if you don't have a collection. But uh, <laughs> um but then, you know, funding becomes a much larger concern. I mean, I am I say this a lot as well. Um, my job can be stressful at times, but I am not worried about making payroll. That would keep me up at night if everything you're doing has implications on people's livelihoods and supporting their families, things like that. So while universities funding, there can be cuts, they can go up and down, there's always kind of a floor to that um so there might be kind of area areas of success where more resources are coming in but there's always a baseline that you're not going to drop below and a lot of that comes to being able to pay staff pay students um and i think with city and state they have some similar types of there's that kind of baseline level of funding and then you you're fundraising on top of that whereas if they're wholly private 
you know that's why you have like membership programs you have fun you have galas you have you're looking at board members based on not just their uh levels of experience they could bring in the institution but how much money they can give to the institution things things of that nature yeah so i want to revisit what you were sharing about the collections Mm -hmm. um and this concept of ownership um can you talk a little bit more about even like the loan process the process of acquisition um specific just generally because i mean the unm art museum as both you and mary have mentioned has the biggest you know collection in the state Mm -hmm. how do you plan to move forward in that way um and i know i already asked a similar question but um yeah, I could be a little more specific on that. So we use that number. It's a great, again, that differentiates us from other institutions. And it's something that um, I think we struggle with. The campus has grown around this building that we're in right now. When this museum was founded, there was no Albuquerque Museum. There was no Hispanic Cultural Center. There was no 516 Arts. It was kind of, if you were a person in Albuquerque, it doesn't have to be a student, who was interested in um, the arts, capital A arts, so performing arts and visual music. Um, the Center for the Arts on Campus was your was the place to be. So it kind of had that um, for folks of a certain generation. There is that that history of like, wow, UNM, that was really where we went and saw plays and shows and museums and all these type of things. The cultural environment has grown around that in Albuquerque, which I think is for the better. Um, but folks, I think expectations of what a museum is now has changed definitely since the 1960s, right? So I don't think that would be surprising to you. The collection was started with individuals who had specific interests. We've talked about photography, we've talked about printmaking. There were also faculty members, very in- uh, influential ones early on in establishing the art department as well as the museum. There was much more of a crossover, I think, in those early days of, oh, I'm a professor, I'm also a curator, museum director. It was much smaller as well, so these worlds kind of interacted. Um, so, for example, like Raymond Johnson, we have this amazing collection of his work as well as the Transcendental Painters Group that these were all friends and colleagues of him. Of his, that's why we have that that work. O'Keeffe's are because her first solo show was in this building in New Mexico, and she made sure the university was represented in her estate when when she passed away. But in general, at the time the individuals were coming here, they weren't from New Mexico. So I've said this before; we've had this on the walls. Um, are uh, of those largest collections, I would say we are not representative with um, Native communities here in New Mexico or elsewhere. Um, the Hispanic community, uh, Latino community in New Mexico as well. I, I'm not putting words in my predecessor's mouth in a way, but I could see, well, there's other institutions that do that. So we should focus on things that aren't in New Mexico. So while we, our collection may not be as diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, gender, um, mar- other marginalized groups, it is diverse in terms of like the type of art we have, the time periods it comes from. That would not make sense for the New Mexico Museum of Art to have a Durer print, for example, or Rembrandt or Picasso in a way. It was all about kind of providing, can we teach art history from the collection? I think that was a very basic way that they were starting with it. I've 
recently been traveling and I was talking to a lot of different alums and something that I think also makes our museum unique is the collection was built. It wasn't through a rich board or a top down approach per se. Um, it was through these various relationships with that the faculty had that the museum staff had. So we're, I always say we're art rich, but resource poor. So that is kind of unique, and especially the caliber of the arts we have uh, in our collection is pretty amazing for it not being a transactional way of acquiring them. It was, I think, in a in most cases, a pretty ideal way of why artists or donors want to give you art. It's like, I believe in the university and its students and its museum and its history and want to have this resource available for the university community and for New Mexico. Um, how we build on that going forward is interesting, right? Photography, part of the reason that was the, the uh, individual's uh, scholarly interest and they knew that world really well. But it was also like you could build a collection of amazing photography for not a lot of money even back then. Um, that's not the case anymore. <laughs> so um, even being strategic and building out that collection and history, the resources required are much more than our predecessors had. If you look through our records, also there's the external funding apparatus that has changed a lot um, since the mid 20th century. Um, National Endowment Arts used to be able to there are works we had that were purchased by funds. They would, the federal government gave you money, you could buy art with it. That doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> a lot of other grant organizations, you can't apply for a grant to say like, we wanna buy art. They're more interested, they don't look at those metrics anymore. Um, you can make it as part of a larger program, but um, so, you know, the environment has really changed a lot. Um, I don't know if we've decided exactly how we want to move forward with that to build on the history that we have, the legacies, or start our own new ones too. It's a challenge to you're thinking about right now, but also, I mean, you're and a lot of this is guessing, right? What does a student fifty years from now respond to? You're you would like to think that what we're doing <laughs> would still resonate, but maybe it won't. Or maybe it'll, maybe not in 50 years, but in 100 years it will. And there are these things can come in cycles, right? Like we had all, I was mentioning Raymond Johnson, Transcendental Painters. For decades, that stuff was just like, oh, these are a bunch of regional artists. If you were into the Southwest, you may have heard of some of them. And they had their kind of niche fans. But a new generation of curators and scholars has come very recently. And there's been national traveling shows of this work. Agnes Pelton on the cover of Art Forum. I never heard of Agnes Pelton when I was a student growing up um, or in art history. So, you know, who knows, right? And that's what I think makes collections interesting and having to think in the long term. Yeah, it's funny that you talk about this crossover, right? Um, you know, during my times that I visited the reading room here, mm -hmm. I've been able to see, you know, work from like earlier, like 19th century type of work that I wouldn't necessarily consider art. Right, but it it's interesting to learn a little bit about the history of how they came into the collection and how curators think differently. You know, also best practices change throughout generations. So I, yeah, just thank you for for sharing that. Yeah, exactly. So you can kind of look at oh, and then you're like oh wait, that was who was the curator then? What were their interests? This totally makes sense. 
right? Who was the director? Maybe who were prominent faculty that had a lot of influence or something like that. And if you know those, if you know that history, then maybe the why we have this stuff <laughs> starts coming a little clearer. Because I still get there'll be things where we happen all the time. We're like, oh my god, you have to come back here. I found this object in this box or in a drawer. Why is this? How did this get to Albuquerque, New Mexico? Um, and I think we can do these very planned exhibitions or scholarly things, but also just come up with these interesting facts of stuff. So anyway. Yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about like the stories that come up with how things get into the collection and often they're surprises or unexpected ways. And one thing, well, kind of how we started this whole project with Marcella was she asked us to look at a family archive photo and an institutional archive photo mm-hmm. and for the semester. So we spent a lot of time looking at these two images. Um, and I think... When you were talking, it reminded me of how that role of the image shifts often from family archive to institutional, from one institution to another sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I was just curious your thoughts around that. And if are there family archives or something that you would consider a family archive in the collection here? Or does it shift once it becomes part of the collection? That's a very good question. Something I've thought about a lot. Not in that specific context context but also just in general when artworks come into a museum collection that I don't know if it's so and something you think about or the assumptions folks have of what that does then to an image that may have lived in someone's bathroom hung above their mantle mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, not surprisingly uh, artworks of certain generations um, gotta clean that nicotine off off of them right so um but specifically with family collections i'm glad you brought that up that's something that really um as i've gotten older and realized that what unm art museum has is unique in that respect for a museum that really appealed to me when i was a student um some of that was based on again talking about folks who faculty and curators but uh especially the 19th century, like the cased objects, daguerreotypes, the photo albums, um, things like that have always, that's what got me into photography. It wasn't necessarily quote unquote uh, art, consciously made art photography. Maybe a slight digression for me personally, but um, as uh, my family are immigrants to this country, I learned a lot about my family history through images, right? I wasn't around a lot of my family growing up. They were in England, they were in India, they were in the Middle East. Um, and so images also as then the first American on either side of the family, I think I learned a lot about American culture through watching copious amounts of television and uh, consuming pop culture. And again, dating myself, uh, magazines, right? Photography is really key in that. So um, I think it was pretty conscious early on, Mary, if I'm mistaken tell me but they were collecting photography as a medium not as an art form so cameras like actually as a as a whole kind of movement they were interested in in that so i think the cased objects and the family things were pretty early on part of the collecting wasn't beaumont into that van van Van. and coke and beaumont new hall after him um but in, in kind of at the same time they overlapped um, yes, Van was collecting 
cased objects right and left. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, those came in, they came in early. Um, there's a whole history of photography and, and what photography is and isn't considered art and how it entered the museum. Um, those things had already started happening. You know, um, those standards were already set by the time Van would have been collecting for us, but, um, or happening kind of simultaneously with what MoMA was doing. Mm -hmm. But I think depending on the family collections that are coming in potentially, we have to look at this now. They had this explosion of photography became much more available to everybody, right? As the decades progressed from the 19th century on. So there's just this the sheer amount that could potentially come our way if we so cho chose to do it. And then is, will those just sit in a box or can they be used? So that goes back to the use case in some ways. I've thought about a lot too is, uh, especially during the pandemic, you guys may remember there was lots of talks about deaccessioning, what those funds can be used for, things like that. So what I find as an intellectual question is, you may not be surprised people, that really gets people's emotions pretty high when talks of deaccessioning and things leaving a museum happen. What's interesting to me is that in many cases, I'm not trying to make, kind of make a very general statement here, <laughs> but in the most part, how things come into museum is not, people are not giving that same level of attention to what comes into one. Mm. That to me is fascinating. So something is happening when they, it's been in a museum and to leave it has, has a higher emotional weight, uh, intellectual weight to this object that, could have lived in someone's house or was just an artist studio then it's been in the museum for a while but to for it to leave there's something happening there that people get anxious about mm -hmm. um and that's something i i find fascinating and i think conversations don't really especially in the public sense when it's in the newspaper or things like that um really get into it all um of so you're just supposed to have this stuff forever. I mean, like, if you really think about it, if we keep going hundreds of years down here, this just quantity of things. <laughs> yeah. And is it supposed to keep exponentially happening? There's also, compared to 20th century, there's way more artists than there used to be. Right? And I would talk with artists, say, who are now in their 80s, if they were talking about the 60s, 70s. Oh, when I was in L.A., I knew all the artists. It was a very small community. New York was that way. You'll hear these stories of all the abstract expressionists hanging out or whatever it is, but there wasn't that. Or you see the group photo and like, that's it? <laughs> like, we're all the other artists. It was, um, so you just kind of see this stuff and then um, there's more photographers than there used to be. That became mm -hmm. a pretty recent phenomenon where one can be a photographer and is self-consciously making images and thinking about their preservation and what's happening in the future. Mm. We get a lot of those right now. And it's like, I'd love to give you my entire collection. Well, depending on their type of photographer, that can be hundreds or thousands of images. If it's a photojournalist, right? Or someone who worked at it, that can be a completely amazing resource. But is that, what can we do with that as an art museum, mm. right? And argue any institution. So. There's always been these talks. I remember growing up as being a young museum professional, and there was always this thing of like the baby boomer 
kind of there's stuff that's going to be just coming flooding institutions when that generation um starts giving retiring um passing along and we're seeing a bit of it now um one of the most challenging conversations i think we have here is with it's in some ways it's easier to talk to the actual artist but it's when say an artist has passed away and it's their children or their family who or caregiver who's trying been asked to care for this stuff and maybe was not given the best instructions by the artists themselves um, it's an emotional thing mm-hmm. again it's not transactional wanting to feel you know it could be like maybe we'll take 10 things and they have still six seven eight hundred a thousand things and they're like what am i supposed to do with this i don't want to i want to be responsible to this person i care about legacy um and there is something about too like is all i think in our culture and where does this come from because it's not like necessarily it's we're being taught this in school but there's an assumption if an artist is creating something it should be cared for always for all time (laughs) you can have that assumption but is that realistic for every single artist out there and what that means for the people who are left to to care for it once they're gone um and i think there's general assumptions especially if they're not in people aren't into museums or art that museum that's that's museum's job is to take quantities of things and keep them forever and well if you take our step well you're going to show it all the time right well what about the 20 other people who've also given the same amount right so uh, really you have to unpack this stuff and you have to gauge the person's um familiarity with museums and museum practices Mm -hmm. and sometimes it's a lot of education you just maybe need to slowly talk them to this point of no we can't take everything or it may never get exhibited in your lifetime. Um, so I joke about this, but it's true. There's oh, there's so many feelings involved with here. And people can be easily offended, can be easily made upset. Um, so I think having to be very intentional in those conversations with people. Um, we don't always get it right either. <laughs> Um, personalities get involved Gen- there's generational differences right someone who's in their 30s dealing with their parents is very different than the artists themselves who may be in late in life and con- this conversation is also about their mortality as well as the stuff so it can get complicated that's way going way off on your initial question but i think it is like kind of back to you're talking about family and family photographs and family imagery those emotions are there with those they may not have been artists but there are still those feelings are attached to those objects and maybe looking for an institution to preserve those Mm -hmm. uh, for future generations so yeah that could be a whole other topic but it is interesting what you were saying about the discomfort with the deaccession conversation is um it's assuming that these objects are as protected as possible within this context, but what happens if they don't get seen or you brought up a lot of interesting points or are they more protected within the family with the story? And I think there's a lot of things to think through. Yeah, definitely. And 
talk about this a lot, but you'll see, and I understand it because I was part of that. What can be interesting, though, is if things are hidden away in collections and you have for curators, scholars, there is they can make their name by like, I discovered this box in this collection and oh my God, how come no one ever knew about this person? Who is this person? There is that excitement too of kind of like, this came in hundred years ago and this rediscovery or now it's resonant with mm-hmm. with an audience today so that's the tough thing right is your well maybe we as an institution right now don't see much of a current use in what we want to do how are we to judge what future generations of curators scholars would would want so that's tough too <laughs> well thank you so much for this conversation it- I think it definitely put a lot into perspective of, you know, the responsibilities that you have in building a legacy for, you know, our community here. Thank you. My pleasure. Happy to do it again. And thank you all for now being a part of that legacy. Thanks for listening to our conversation with RF Khan. Check out this episode's show notes for links to references and resources mentioned in our conversation. This episode is part of a series. Subscribe to the Collective Constructs podcast for all the episodes.